This morning, um, I've titled the message, Having the Mind of Christ, Discerning True Power. You'll see that, that those are words, those are themes that come up in the text here this morning. As Adam has already prayed, and as Christine has read from Colossians and the song that we just listened to, uh, surveying the cross, all of those things are, are directing us to the, the frame of mind that I, I pray that the Holy Spirit will, will use to make this passage uh, all the more rich as we hear it and as the Spirit works in us to form us according to it. So Father, as we now open up this passage, as we come to this as your word, we pray, Father, for your, your Spirit to do what only you can do, that is to give us the discernment, the wisdom that comes from you to, to hear, to understand, and to apply your word. We do pray, Lord, that you would make us more like your Son. In his name, amen. Well, if you'll recall, the Corinthian church is receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, had, had planted this church about maybe three or four years earlier. So this is a, this is a young church. Uh, this is a letter that he's writing back to them after he has spent about a year and a half with them and, and moved on to start planting other churches. He's hearing things about their, their health and their condition, and he's writing this letter to respond to the fact that he has heard that this church has become a deeply fractured church, that they have a lot of problems and the key issue, as we've seen over the last couple Sundays, that, that he's been addressing in the first three chapters of this letter to them is that there is a, there's a terrible divisiveness in the church. There's a spirit of divisiveness. It's, it's the spirit of the culture that's just kind of been no different in the believers than it is in the world. And it's ripping them apart. The members of the church, and it seems like every member was complicit in this. If you look at chapter 1, verse 12, he says there, each one of you has split into these factions. And these, these are factions that were driven by partisan politicking. And so what Paul is doing here is he's, he's pointing out to them that this, this divisiveness, these factions that are a result of this partisanship, is a result of two things. The first one is that they've forgotten who they are. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 1, he says, you are God's church. They've forgotten who they are, and as a result, they've forgotten who it is that they belong to, both individually but also corporately. They belong to Christ. They don't belong to these factions. They don't belong to human wisdom or human leaderships. They're God's church. They belong to Christ. That's the first thing that he wants to point out to them. And, and then the, the second thing is this, that the reason you are in these factions is because indeed you are being driven by the divisive and polarized ideological arguments of the broader culture, the pagan culture or, or the secular culture. That's what's been driving you. You're thinking and acting more like people of the world than like people of the gospel. And so the last two weeks we've been discussing this issue, but what we haven't yet done is really done a deep dive into the root heart issues behind these competing ethics and ideologies. 
That's what we'll do today as we focus in on the latter half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. We're going to see that this is what Paul is about to do in that section of his letter. He's, he's doing a deep dive into the heart issues behind the competing ideologies. And he wants the church to see there's a difference. There's, there's two main ways that you can live, and there's a, there's a significant difference between so-called worldly wisdom on this side and spiritual discernment over here. And I want you to understand this. What he does here is so important because what he's doing is he's identifying that thing which, which lies at the heart of the matter. That really gets down again to that, that heart issue. He's, he's going to help us see that the, the true issue here is really about power. It's about an understanding of, of what power is. What is true power? It's, it's again, about this fundamentally different understanding between the message of the world and the message of the gospel over what constitutes true power. Conflict, as we've said over and over again, is at work in the Corinthian church. Conflict is also at work in the American church. So we need to hear this. And here's what I want us to, to, to take into our, our, our time in the Word. Conflict is almost always, almost always, the result, or let me put it this way, it's, it's rooted in a power struggle. Conflict is power struggle. So what we're going to do this morning as we walk through these verses is we're going to see three things. The first one is how the world defines wisdom and therefore power. Then we're going to see how God defines wisdom and therefore power. And then finally, we're going to see the, a call here to us as the church to know the difference, to know the difference. So look with me down at chapter 1. I'm actually going to start in verse 17, because I think that's where his, his thought process begins here. And I'm going to read through verse 25. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God 
is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's start with Paul helping us understand how the world defines power. And you'll notice that there's a couple of things that he says here. He talks about wisdom and he talks about signs. Those are key terms here. How does the world define power through wisdom and signs? I want you to notice that he gives this this really succinct and yet remarkably sufficient description of the world's vision of power in verses 20 and in verse 22. What we see there is we see the who of the world and we see the how of the world in terms of their understanding of power. Look again at verse 20. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? This is the who. This is the who. These are, these are the cultural elites. These are the, the political pundits and the religious leaders and the scholars. These are the ones who are considered to be sort of the professionals or the experts. They're the ones that have the loudest voices who also have the, the widest influence in society. So the, 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 uh, the, the debaters and the scribes and the, the woes who are wise represent the leaders of these various tribes and factions that culture, that society is divided up into. They, these are the, the, the sort of the, the head, the figureheads or the leaders of the groups that, that you as members of culture would align up under their philosophy, their ideology, their politics, whatever, and take sides with them against the competing messages. So the who, as Paul is trying to get us to understand this, are the influencers of society, but also the influenced. In other words, it's pretty much any of us who come under this this philosophy of the wisdom of the world and make up society. One way or the other, we are all potentially and likely the who of the worldly wisdom. And here's the how. The the dominant philosophy of these tribes is verse 22, again, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, I want you to please understand that Paul is not singling out Jewish people or Greek people like we'd think of these people groups today, all right? What he's doing here is he's talking about the primary cultural groups, the primary uh, uh, dominant philosophies of his own context. These are the dominant philosophical systems of his day. And here's what we need to grasp about these ideologies. This is important. They're both, whether it's the Jews seeking signs or the Greeks seeking wisdom, they're both about winning. They're both about power. Let me explain. To seek after signs is to seek after demonstrations of dominance. In other words, it's about seeing results. To see your your, the, the, the philosophy, excuse me, or the ideology that you're lining up under, you know, produce a winning message. It's about results. Why was the word of the cross folly to those who seek after signs? Here's why. Because the Messiah that they were looking for would not arrive in a manger. 
He would not die a criminal's death by the hands of a Roman court. That's not power. Power would be a Messiah who comes, as as one commentator phrased it, in an apocalyptic tone. Triumphalistic in character, the embodiment of one of the mighty deeds of deliverance that you might read about in the Old Testament that emancipates people from slavery, abolishes all other political rivals, and dominates the scene. That, that sounds like power. In other words, the signs that they're seeking after all point to a winner, not a loser. The rational philosophy of the Jews had rejected Jesus and the cross as blasphemous. And they did that because the ancient conception of the divine, of what what a God would be, was one that valued might and victory. And, I mean, well, frankly, just nothing that looked like Jesus looked. Jesus was one who humbled himself. Jesus was one who subjected himself to the scorn and the scoffing of his opponents and rivals, and he turned the other cheek. And the Greeks who sought after wisdom were similarly seeking after something that didn't look much like Christ. They were seeking after social status and influence. See, in the ancient world, wisdom was regarded as the highest attainable virtue. Again, it's all about power. You have to understand this about Greco-Roman culture, and this is where Corinth was situated. They were a part of this, this culture. It was not an aristocracy. It was a meritocracy. In other words, it's what, your, your status in society was what you merited. It's, it's what you earned. You, you didn't achieve social status just by being born into it. You earned it. Power, status, and position were things that you achieved. And so the primary cultural uh, currency, the primary cultural currency was wisdom and knowledge and intellect. It was education. It was, it was found in, in being successful in empire building, in coalition building, and material success. It, again, it was about winning. And these philosophies, whether it's seeking signs or seeking wisdom, they reject Jesus and the gospel because Jesus, in the eyes of the world, was weak. He was a nobody rabbi from a a, a nowhere corner of the empire who was rejected by the elites, who was arrested who was tried and, worst of all, executed on an ignominious cross, which was the most gruesome and detestable symbol of shame in the modern world. Now, I wonder if we forget that sometimes because the cross for us as Christians is is a symbol of of great meaning and beauty, right? But, But not so in the ancient world. Not at all. No one would be caught dead wearing a cross on a necklace, Right? Or, or hanging a cross up in their home. 
A cross was something you didn't talk about. You couldn't look at it. It was, it was the representation of all that was shameful and grotesque. And this Jesus, that's how he dies? Most importantly, though, Jesus was rejected because Jesus was not a self-grasper. He was not a glory-seeker, but he was a self-giver. And therefore, Jesus and his followers and his followers are dismissed in the broader culture because, to to borrow a phrase from our our recent culture, cultural lexicon they were losers and suckers here's here's what we need to grasp here whether you're a seeker of signs or a seeker of wisdom you're inherently one side of the same coin you you, you, you might be seeking after different things but your your goal is the same your aim your value is self-glory and if, you're, if your aim and your value is self-glory, you are forced into a mindset that believes that you have to take from others in order to gain from your, for yourself, right? If, if my aim is self-glory, I am forced into a mindset that says, I have to take from you in order to gain for me. That's the way it works. Why? Because the pursuit of worldly power is a zero-sum game. Think about this with me, because it's, it's really important. It's a zero-sum game. It is a constant power struggle. Why are nations always struggling with and fighting against other nations? The reason is because there's only so many resources for all of us to, to, to place a stake of control in, right? It's limited, and so therefore, we're constantly struggling with each other for dominance and for control over the, the limited resources that are available. If I'm going to gain, I've got to take from you. Democrats and Republicans have only so many voters that they can court. There's only so many seats available in Congress that they have to wrestle over and fight over, and so it's, I have to take from you to gain for me, and it's constant struggle and fight and power, Right? Blacks and whites have only so many seats at the table of positions of influence in society. There's only so much power that can be had over economics or housing or or any other issue. And so we fight and pull and struggle. If, If power is a limited commodity then oppressive majorities can only resort to the maintenance of the status quo, right? And the oppressed can only resort to the language of revolution. And that's what we're seeing in our own culture today, right? It's about maintaining the status quo or calls for revolution. It's power struggle because we see power as a limited commodity. We talk about the fabric of society. That's actually a really, a really good mental picture of what society is like. We're, we're like a piece of fabric, right? But if that piece of fabric is constantly being pulled in different directions, what happens to the piece of fabric? It tears. 
And likewise, society is being torn apart. And here's, here's what Paul is doing. He's looking at the church. He's writing to them and he's saying, in a very chastising way, this is exactly how you're behaving. Because it's the, it's the world's vision of wisdom in which you are believing. Power struggle. Faction. But this is not the message of the cross. Which moves us into the second thing that Paul wants us to understand. How God defines power, which is the weakness of the cross. The world defines power through signs and wisdom, strength and winning. God's definition of power is shown through the weakness of the cross. Verse 18, for the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Again, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, their efforts to achieve power through knowledge and education and, and, and self-glory seeking, that, that didn't it didn't work. They can't find God that way. Why? Because it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the gospel, the cross of Christ, to actually demonstrate power to save people who believe. Again, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, get this, crucified. The ignominious cross we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews. And it's, a, it's folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called from, from, from all groups, both Jews and Greeks, who are redeemed in Christ, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For again, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What, what we might think here is that Paul is turning the world's vision of wisdom and power sort of on its head. But, but I want you to get this. That's not exactly what his, his mindset is. Rather, he's trying to show that, no, there's a pre-existent vision of wisdom and power. Well before the world came along and defined it through winning, right, through power struggle, there is a pre-existent, there is an ultimate reality, there is a true wisdom and power, that precedes all of that, and this is God's way. This is God's plan. This is God's way of seeing the world, and he's not turning the world on its head. The world has turned God's way on its head. God's wisdom is true wisdom. God's power is true power. Now, again, I, I made a point in reading the text here to focus on this. Paul focuses on the crucifixion. Notice he doesn't focus on the resurrection here. He focuses on the crucifixion, which is not to say that the resurrection isn't important. Of course, Paul will talk greatly about the resurrection and the fact that the power of God is ultimately displayed, right? The cross is vindicated through the resurrection, but he's not going there right here because he's talking to a culture that's all about displays of power, and he's saying, look at the weakness of the cross, 
This is actually where we'll see God's wisdom. Why? Because the message of the cross is power through weakness. The cross is the place where where Jesus shows an entirely different way in a world filled with, with winning and power demonstrations. He shows us that all of that is powerless to save and that the ultimate way to actually saving, reconciling, and redeeming this broken world full of power struggles is through the humility of self-sacrifice. The message of the cross is power, the power of God to save, to redeem through the death. The self-giving, self-emptying love of Christ to humiliate himself, to condom, why can't I think of the right word? (laughs) You know what I mean, to come down to us. Condescend is the word I was thinking of, right? This is the picture of Christ on the cross. And and here we have a, a very different reality. In a world where, where, where you've got this, this limited supply, this limited commodity of, of, of earthly power and earthly resource, we see Christ who comes down filled with the unlimited supply of the love of God. It's an unlimited supply. This is not a zero-sum game. You can give of this love and share of this love without losing any of that love because God's love is not limited. Therefore, the weakness of the cross serves as an antidote to human self-glorification. And it does that by engendering an intellectual humility in us, right? It, It humbles us to recognize that our human thinking, what's natural to us, what's worldly in us, leads to a messed up vision of wisdom and a messed up vision of power because it's the message of the cross that shows that the power of God's love is greater than the human love of power. The weakness of the cross is God's revelation of true power. It's not found in boasting in myself. It's not found in aligning with or boasting in my tribe or my worldly ideology, but rather in depending wholly upon God from whom all power flows in a self-giving love. So Paul's saying, do you, do you see this? There's a difference. There's, there's the world's vision of wisdom and power. There's God's vision of wisdom and power. And finally, he wants the church to know the difference. To know the difference. Not just in what they intellectually understand, but in how they live. And there's, there's three ways that this difference can be observed and understood. I'll tell you what the three ways are, but I'm going to focus really on the third one. The first one would be in the nature of the church. The second one would be in the foundation of the church. 
And the third one would be in the, the spiritual discernment that's evidenced by a mature church. So the first one, again, I said is the nature of the church. I'm just going to read the text and let it speak for itself. Chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here's important, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, do you know the difference? you see the difference between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom? One, one thing you can do is just look to you, the nature of the church. Look to who you are. And notice this, that the whole point of this collection of people that God has called to himself is to demonstrate that we can't boast in ourselves. Only the Lord. This is his doing. This is his work. You are weakness made strong through the power of the cross. Secondly, you can look at the foundation of the church. This is who you are, but remember how, how it started in the first place. I came to you, Paul would say, a couple years ago. I, I preached this gospel. I planted this church. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers... I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom like you're hearing out in the forum, impressive language, faction building. For no, I decided, verse 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When I came to you, I, I wasn't like the orators of the world. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't coalition building like the world does. I was, I, was, I was trembling in fear. Fear of what? Fear of God right? That I am nothing before this great, true source of power. He is the power source. It's through Christ and him crucified. And, and that's the message that you believe. That's the example that you were given so that, again, you might not boast in yourselves or in any ideology or, or in, in any philosophy, that's why we read earlier from Colossians, don't be taken captive by, by these vain and foolish philosophies of the world. No, just Christ. Just Christ. No resting in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So you can see this difference in the nature of the church. You can see it in the foundation of the church. Thirdly, you can see it in the spiritual discernment then 
In other words, the activity, the, the, the lifestyle of a mature church. And here's where I want to spend a little more time. Chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. There's two immediate things I want to point your attention to in these verses. The first one is that Paul is making clear that this distinction between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom is not an invitation to or an excuse for anti-intellectualism. Okay? He's not saying, you know, to be, to be a follower of Christ, to be under the wisdom of God is to, is to abandon all thinking or to abandon all wisdom. He's saying, no, there, there's, a, there's a better wisdom. There's a higher wisdom here. The wisdom of God, true wisdom, is a wisdom that is unclouded by the fall of sinful humanity. It's a higher wisdom, not a lower or less sophisticated one. You don't fail to think when you become a Christian. Rather, you think on a higher, truer plane. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the wisdom he's referring to here is a wisdom that both requires and evidences spiritual maturity. We talked about this last week, the problem of spiritual immaturity. Remember the beginning of chapter 3, Paul lays this charge against them. You're not mature, Corinthian church. You are immature. That's why you're having all these problems. There's a, there's a, there's a spiritual maturity problem here in you, right? But Paul is pointing them, and here he's pointing us to something higher. Where does spiritual maturity come from? Where does it come from? Verse 10, in chapter 2. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand all things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You're immature, church. Where does maturity come from? Does it, does it come from you? Does it come from more Bible study, just more, you know, sort of, you know, screwing up within yourselves this higher level of growth? No. He's saying here, God has given to us a gift to the whole church. It's, it's insight into his way of seeing all things, of seeing the world, and it's through his spirit. And we've been given the spirit. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person 
judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Again, this difference between the way the natural person who doesn't have the Spirit, they can't discern this higher wisdom. But you can if you have the Spirit. We can discern the thoughts of God because God can share them with us by His own Spirit, right? And then He says this interesting thing here. We have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? Maybe another way to ask that is, who is the we that Paul is speaking about here? We have the mind of Christ. Didn't he, isn't he just about to say, you're immature? Wouldn't, wouldn't we think that maybe we don't have the mind of Christ, right? So is he just talking about himself and Sosthenes who are writing this letter to them? We have the mind of Christ. Listen, right? Or is, or is he talking about individual believers? If you have the Spirit, you have the mind of Christ? Or is he talking about the mature church? I think the answer is the latter. It's the mature church, which would include, of course, Paul and Sosthenes. It would include individual believers. But the emphasis here, I believe, is on the corporate body. How do I know that? Because this is a a really important part of Paul's entire argument here. His entire argument about divisiveness and unity in the church. So I want you to think about this with me as we recap what Paul has said in the first three chapters. Remember, he begins by reminding them of their identity. You are God's church. You're God's church. You belong to him because you've been sanctified by him, which is to say you've been called to be holy. You've been called to be a set-apart people, having been united in fellowship, in koinonia, in community, right? In oneness, both with Christ and with each other. But they haven't been living up to that call. Instead, again, they're divided into camps. They're divided into factions, having been overly influenced by by the surrounding culture's partisanship and polarization. And so Paul says this this wisdom of the world, which is is characterized by by power struggles and elitism and, and victimization and dominance, it's destroying the church. Because because it creates division. It creates us versus them. It creates good guys and and bad guys, tribes and rivals. And he says, and, and again, the reason you're in this state of affairs, church, is because you're spiritually immature. You're still of the flesh. And so he appeals to them. Remember chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And we talked about this last week, but I think it bears repeating because it's so important as to application. What does it mean to agree? What does it mean to have the same mind? Does unity require uniformity? Or does, does agreeing mean we have to disengage from all that's happening in the world, we've got to sort of place our heads in the sand, as it were, never talking about politics or economics or injustices or racial issues or cultural issues. Is that what it means? Does, does spiritual maturity mean we have to create this dichotomy between the things of the church and the things that we see on the news? 
No. No, it does mean, however, that we have to learn by the Spirit's help to appraise all of these things spiritually. To have the mind of Christ, right? But notice that Paul says here, we have this mind. He doesn't say, I have this mind. He doesn't say, you have this mind. He says, we do. Spiritual maturity occurs within the ministry of a healthy church. And you can look all through Paul's writings and just see how all of this works together. This is, a, this is classic Ephesians 4 ecclesiology. I want to just, just listen. I'm going to turn there. I just want you to hear what he says here. Remember Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then he reminds them of what the church is like. He says he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, etc., etc. What Paul is saying here is, is, is the Spirit is a gift that he's given to the church. We have the mind of Christ and we need each other. We need each other in all of our diversity, in all of our, our varying backgrounds and perspectives to grow in maturity, to learn the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? You know, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, again, I'll read it, just listen. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, that's worldly wisdom, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the mind of Christ. Church, we have this mind when we, together, allow the Spirit to work in us to help each other grow towards maturity. We can talk about anything then, right? We can talk about anything and we can, we can learn to agree when we do so in intellectual humility and in love for one another, bound together by our belonging in Christ. Are we going to see some things differently at first? Yes, but with an intellectual humility that allows us to value one another and to lovingly help one another, we can learn to see what is true more clearly when we work together in pointing each other towards maturity in Christ. Listen, the next couple months are going to be fraught with cultural division. They, are, they already are now, right? <laughs> I think it's going to get worse fraught with cultural division and polarization, church, we cannot get caught up in the power struggles of the world. We cannot get caught up in the power struggles of the world. A spirit-given discernment of God's wisdom, of God's power through the cross is what will help us to either either begin to see that some of the things that maybe we, we find ourselves most captured by, most excited by, most sort of hyped up about, so passionate about, maybe we'll find that they're not really worth being passionate about. If the Spirit is helping us to discern the difference between what's worldly wisdom and what's Christ-like wisdom, right? It, 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 might, it might be that I, that I realize that something that makes me so passionate, if I, if I stop and I say, Spirit, give me discernment. Church, help me see perspective here through spiritual discernment. I might find out that my, my passion is deeply tied into a worldly wisdom. Or, or we might find that there are things that are worth being passionate about. And, and a spiritual discernment within the, the body where we're helping one another to see and learn and grow and, and aim towards maturity, it will help us to take up those issues, right issues, with a newfound willingness and humility to help each other apply a gospel-centered framework that pursues justice and righteousness and love and reconciliation in ways that display the self-giving ethic of Jesus rather than the power-grabbing ethic of the world. We need to remember who we are. We need God's Spirit to teach us, to illuminate our minds so that we can discern all things spiritually. And when we do that, listen, the world will think us fools. The world will think us fools. They will never understand that kind of logic, right? In a world of winning and dominance and, and taking, they'll never understand that logic. But that's no matter. 
That's no matter because the foolishness of God, which is not a true foolishness, it's just perceived as foolishness, right? The foolishness of God in his church must be, can be, and will be the only place in the world where the wisdom of God, which actually unites all things together, which actually reconciles all things under the headship of Christ. That's the only place that kind of power, real power, can be seen. The church. And this by never taking our focus off of the message of the cross. Folly to the world, but to us who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. So, Lord, yes, grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to imagine what you have prepared for those who love you. In Jesus' name, amen.